0: Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, host of Over the Edge, the only podcast focused on teaching you about edge computing, the grid, and the future of the internet. On this show, I interview experts and practitioners with deep knowledge and expertise in digital infrastructure and the software and technologies that support it. We'll even throw in a little metaverse, web three, and cryptocurrency to keep it on trend. Join us each episode for a mind-expanding romp through the vast technological and business landscape that is quickly defining
1: our new digital world. Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Rex St. John, founder of Toroko Technology. Rex has spent the last decade building developer and innovator ecosystems at Intel, Arm, and NVIDIA. He recently resigned to work full-time in Web3 to organize communities and developer programs. Rex runs a YouTube channel where he shares knowledge, analysis, and insights about the future of hardware, software, and crypto technology. In this episode, Rex provides his views on the evolution and adoption of edge computing in IoT, including how Kubernetes is helping to drive transformation. He also delves into the future of what he calls the machine economy, where hardware, cryptocurrency, blockchain, and the metaverse work in tandem to ensure continued efficiencies and support for business operations and security. Rex also raises the importance of improving the environmental impact of cryptocurrency and blockchain and advancements in democracy, social engagement, and community. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Rex St. John, founder of Toroko Technology, and your host, Matt Trefiro.
0: Hey, Rex, how are you doing today?
1: Pretty good. How are you?
0: I'm awesome. You know, before we get into talking all things edge and crypto and Web3, I want to make sure that our audience knows that even though you are a full-time employee of NVIDIA, you are on my show presenting your personal opinions. Is that correct?
2: My opinions.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, awesome. I like your opinions, and we'll go right into that. So why don't we just start with how you got started in technology?
2: I flew out to Seattle in about 2006 to work at my brother's company. And he had started one of the early video game microtransaction-based companies called Wild Tangent. And they had figured out a way to convert advertising and turn it into a form of token that developers and players could use to monetize and play games. So uh, I worked in uh, video games for a little while and then I was at a startup that went under during the 2007 implosion and every engineer at the company had a job in a week and when I saw that I decided that I was going to learn to program so I spent about 12 months in a coffee shop with used college textbooks learning uh, coding and interviewing and then I t- ultimately scaled that into a, a career in software development, consulting, and then ultimately technical evangelism.
0: That's pretty cool. Did you have any sort of an uh, engineering or technical background prior to the, the the gaming
2: job? Just marketing. I took one computer science class, but you know my brothers are very into engineering, so they, they told me what to do and what to study, so I just followed their advice.
0: Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I started my career as a programmer and then realized that there were people that were much better at it than me, and <laughs> so I went into marketing. So it's like we <laughs> crossed paths. When we think about edge computing, IoT comes up a lot because devices, the things are actually at the the edge. Can you tell me how you see edge computing and IoT evolving? In particular, I know you have an interest in in Web3 and crypto payment systems as possibly being a, a way to monetize some edge and also make it easier to consume edge. Can you tell us a little about your thoughts on that?
2: So I kind of have this very simple binary model that I call device up and cloud down. So throughout my career, you know, I began in the Silicon space at Intel and I was part of Intel developer relations division and I was part of Intel new technology group. And at the time it felt like a lot of developers were very happy where I've got an embedded device and now I'm able to connect this to some form of internet or connectivity whether that be a Laura or a Bluetooth or, or, or whatever or Ant Plus. And they're happy to take their embedded device and send some signals someplace. And that was kind of like their mindset. So that's been that's been like kind of the, the focus of IoT over the last decade. And and then lately it's become much more sophisticated as this edge computing conversation has come in. So I view edge computing as a almost like a cloud phenomenon pushing down. So IoT is device up, and then edge feels like infrastructure or cloud down. So with all the the, the tools and practices developed by folks like Netflix and Facebook and Amazon, they've, they've got some very sophisticated methods for how to spin up and manage fleets and, and very large clusters of devices. So they, cr- they created a lot of software techniques for how to do that. And now they're trying to push those techniques down to the edge. So they're trying to move that that computation power from the cloud down close to the edge and then these two worlds are kind of combining and there have been a lot of really nice frameworks put together especially by LF edge by yourself that explain this in great detail they' so what the IOT is kind of like the device edge and then like the edge is like you know there's a, a million different taxonomies there so that's that's the basics of it I yeah think. although
0: although what's interesting Rex is uh, so I guilty as charged I spent a last five years, trying to clarify and educate the world on edge. And now I'm starting to think that we're going to stop talking about it. Eventually. It's just going to be all part of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, can the workload run? Can the network and the compute deliver the quality service for the workload? Yes or no. And it doesn't matter where it is. It matters it can perform. So, so that's, that's a great framework. So why do you say device up? What does that, what does that mean?
2: for me that means I've got some embedded device and I'm just happy to get this thing connected to the internet and sending a signal. So like when I began, we were very happy to have things like the electric imp and electric imp was ultimately acquired by Twilio and electric imp and devices like particle and some of the, what what are
0: these? I I don't think my listeners will necessarily know. These
2: are like maker devices. These are like little embedded microcontrollers, like no Linux. And With Electric Imp, some of the biggest challenges that were faced with these devices is just how do you make it simple and easy to set it up, provision, and begin sending data. So the Electric Imp people had some extremely clever methods of like, you take your device and it's got an LED and it flashes and you hold your phone and you record it and then automatically pairs it. So they just had these really nice mechanisms for how to get these things connected to the internet. So that, for me, that was about like the early IoT was like, how do you, how do you actually get this stuff and make it usable and easy for developers to get some value out of it in a really short period of time.
0: Yeah. I I recently interviewed Rob Tilly who most recently ran IoT at Ericsson. Yeah. And he said, "Look, at the end of the day, 90% of the value of IT, IoT is replacing the guy with the clipboard." Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody has to go out to an oil rig and take a measurement and Get back in his truck and drive back to somewhere and yeah, we're just yeah. automating and making that faster which I, you know I think is a. it really speaks to you know we've been talking about IOT I mean what, almost two decades now right Long time, yeah. yeah and I think every, every year was going to be the year of IOT yeah and maybe we actually are in, in the year of IOT so where are we in this arc of connecting things to the internet. I mean, are, are we still mostly replacing the guy with the clipboard or are we doing more interesting things?
2: It seems like we did spend a lot of time with just trying to get things connected and, and being happy that it's connected to the cloud. And then once we'd done that, then uh, it kind of felt like, all right, we, we did that. Is that actually going to be the thing that drives massive volume and like all this business and all this profitability? And like, is this going to create some sort of, you know, new Apple and there's some extremely successful businesses that started and scaled in that era, and then some of them had phenomenal exits. But now it feels like the winners of that era have been chosen. You know, you had electric games bought by Twilio, and then Particles, and Belinas, and, and, and folks like that. And now we're in this new era, which is Kubernetes has come along, Kubernetes and cloud native. And this is changing the conversation in, in some really interesting ways and creating a whole new swath of innovation. And then there's further generations past that. But you know, I, I do think people get tired. People get tired of hearing about IoT and the conversation has to change. And then ultimately, as you said, it's driven by the workloads and the profitability. If people aren't investing, then the innovation's gonna move slower. And then the work if the workloads aren't there, then it's it's not a justified innovation. So I think right now it feels very much like edge computing is is on the rise.
0: So let's, let's talk about that. What, what are you seeing today that's meaningful and interesting to you that you see as fundamentally different, potentially starting this acceleration that you didn't see in, in your, your prior experience with IoT? I
2: would say after the last two years or so, I've talked to like several hundred cloud-native, edge-native, open-source, edge-AI, edge-IoT, telco-edge, talking to all these different companies and startups and, you know, AI companies, MLOps companies. So I've gotten a pretty broad view of the current state of the market. And my current read of it is that Kubernetes has just absolutely blown up. And the industry had embraced containers as a, as a good way to manage software and that took a little bit of a lift for people to every, everybody to rebuild their, their software and infrastructure on containers. Now Kubernetes is coming along and adding additional layers of complexity. And this is causing people to have to restructure things and reconsider how they're building their platforms and reconsider who, like what skill sets they need and how to structure. So this advent of Kubernetes is causing a lot of innovation in the, in the form of these turnkey qu- Kubernetes orchestration platforms. And then there's also been some side effects such as people questioning whether or not Kubernetes is the right tool for the job for a lot of different situations and whether or not it's too heavyweight. So there's there's uh, subsequent innovation, how to slim Kubernetes down or replace it with something that's much more streamlined that, that provides the value of Kubernetes without the Kubernetes. So that's that's kind of the, the stage we're in now where it's just like, it feels to me like we've gone from, all right, I'm happy. I just have my microcontroller sending data. And now it's like, actually, the thing that's sending data is a full computer and is connected to other full computers. Maybe it's organized into a cluster of full computers. So I've, I always use the example of this Jetson Mate board from Seed, which is a cluster of NVIDIA Jetsons. So this type of device is fundamentally different from like, just an electric imp sending some MQTT data. This thing's running full Linux. It's doing GPU acceleration. Needs to have containers, needs to have Kubernetes, needs to have networking. So, this, so this, is,
0: this, this isn't a video podcast, so I'm going to describe this. Yeah. So what Rex was holding up in literally yeah. the palm of his hand, so it's about yeah. the size of, I know, it's four by four yeah. inches. And it had three, I guess, the, in Jetsons. Those small are the three holes, Jetsons yeah. with the heat with the heat sinks on it. So it's a small device. I mean, it's something you could fit in a, in a, a small Tupperware box. And, and how, how powerful is that thing?
2: Pretty powerful. I think if you add up, to add up all the cores, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But this is a quite a powerful device which, once you begin clustering it. So this is more of an edge server than it is. So it's more similar to what we have in the data center in a way than what we might have previously had at the edge. So Kubernetes is enabling this. And I just see the industry is having to process what that means right now. And, and currently, the first phase of it seems to be, OK, we just need to be happy that we're we're able to plug this thing in, put Kubernetes on it, have high availability, and and, and like just have it up and running as part of our, as an extension of our infrastructure. But I think it's going to evolve to include AI in the next maybe year year or two as that those fundamental building blocks go into place.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So let's 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 put a pin in this for a second, and let's yep. let's double click down into some of this this basic uh, terminology. So. Yeah. You mentioned Kubernetes. Most people know what Kubernetes is. It's a, yes. it's a cluster orchestration system. But other than the fact that it's popular and utilizes containers, which I think everybody mm-hmm. understands, what is it about Kubernetes that you think is putting it in a position to drive a transformation?
2: So let me rewind this. So one of the most interesting conversations I had when I was at Intel is I was talking to the CTO of an automated robotic forklift startup that had raised like $200 million. And I was trying to pitch him the Intel Jewel, which is like this $300, $400 module. And he was like, how much does that cost? Oh, it's $400? I'll buy five. Like, I don't care. Like, I'll I'll put, like, I'll decorate my forklift with, with computers. It's a $200,000 forklift. What I care about is that my engineer doesn't have to spend any more time learning how to use it. And it doesn't interrupt my engineer because that's a four hundred dollar device but if it takes my engineer forty hours then like the cost of that engineering time is extremely higher than the cost of adding a new device so that 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 human element of like having that programmer or having that person that has to go out and be on site is is far more expensive than a lot of this hardware so i I think that the opportunity with kubernetes is to add additional resiliency like I meant like this device if I've got Four different co- four different modules clustered together, and one fails. Kubernetes has a str- has a has a practice called high availability, so it can recover. The, the two cores that are still running can recover the other the other computer that went down, or take on some of its workload. So when you start doing the math on like what it costs to replace the device, if, if one of those modules goes down and you lose the use of that device for three weeks. Maybe it's better just to put, build a little edge, edge cluster like that and, let, and, and be happy with one of them failing and have the resiliency that Kubernetes offers in that you can have those high availability clusters at the edge for that kind of use well, case.
0: That is the standard of a data center. You just yeah. assume everything's going to fail. Yes. And you build yeah. software to go around it. And, that's, and, it's, and it's very much more cost efficient, too, from the standpoint of the historical way of providing that level of yeah. availability was redundant mechanical equipment. Yeah. right? <laughs> and software high availability is much more efficient. So so I think I hear you saying that that one of the advantages, resilience, but also mm-hmm. the ability for a developer to use the same tool when writing their server software that they use to deploy yeah. the, the elements that run on the device and that, that and into a single workflow. And then I think I heard one other thing, which will be a nice transition, I think, into, into some of the Web3 conversations, which is orchestration. Yeah. Can you explain orchestration?
2: So I mentioned containers caught on in a big way. Everyone knows that. And then they caught on so much that we began having too many containers or a lot of containers. And I think the folks began to realize that just managing and maintaining and keeping these containers healthy was becoming a burdensome thing. So they desired this automated system that just kind of took care of it. And that's where Kubernetes came from. In the edge computing space, you don't necessarily often care exactly where the workload is running like if I've got some edge cluster that's in some some autonomous retail store that's running a bank of cameras to to watch everything everyone's doing and then I have a co-located data data center that's a mile away with kubernetes if if that local cluster fails in some way then you can kind of fall back to that next best bex cluster and and kubernetes enables like kind of use cases like that so, when you treat everything as just an extension of the data center, that's what you get. Versus like trying to draw a box around your your retail store and being like, well, this is a different system, and then my data center is a different system. It's like actually you want those to be the same system so that you can have just on that a gradient balancing. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And it's orchestration. The word's actually a great word, right? Cause you can imagine an orchestra with a hundred different musicians, each with yeah. a different instrument and a conductor, which would be the scheduler, I suppose. Right. And the conductor has all the quote unquote workloads, which are the yes. notes that need to be played yes. and points at the different musicians and tells exactly. them when to play what note. And if yeah. the violinist pass out, the first violinist, yes. you know, you got to send <laughs> that note right to here. the second yes. violinist <laughs> without getting too morbid here. And so, orchestration is a really good thing. I think the other thing that that people miss not not because it's because I think it's subtle, but it's really true. We're moving from a world of humans operating machines to machines yes. operating machines, and yes. all of this happens to ha- has to happen at machine speed. So even without human intervention, right? Because it's going to happen in potentially. Hundreds of millions of locations, yes, many, many, many times per second, or millisecond, or microsecond, yes. And so you need these algorithm approaches. Okay, so so let's imagine a system where we have thousands of computers, some of them on the devices or on the Jetson boards, or in a data center, in a micro modular data center near near the facility, in a regional data center, in a core data center, and they're all running Kubernetes. So that's mm-hmm. a world which, yeah, I I see that emerging how does how, how does web3 fit into this and before you answer that question let's try to define web3 can you yeah. can you provide a high level definition of web3 oh
2: boy i mean like there there are some much more qualified people to answer that well, what are the basic yeah. principles uh, so, I, I, yeah basically what what's happened is is we've decided to take this transaction layer and and build it on these shared systems it's kind of the about the migration from single nodes being in charge of their own security to this sort of crowd-based security where everybody is in charge of, of maintaining the shared security of the system. So I'll I'll explain what I mean. So like, Mm -hmm. let's say you have one bank and you only have one security guard. And if the security guard takes a nap or the bank gets broken in around the back where the security guard's not looking, then that system is, is less secure than a system where you take all the money and you put it into a glass vault and you surround it with 10,000 security guards. So those 10,000 security guards can all, like you can't take any money out of that vault without without somebody noticing. So what they've done is they've, they're they kind of trading privacy in exchange for a different type of security. So that by, by turning transparency up to 100%, just letting everybody see how much money there is and, and where the money is and what locations the money is, they're able to create a, a much more serious level of security by making that kind of trade-off. Whereas before, they're like, well, let's kind of like bury our money in the backyard and hope nobody, nobody digs there. So this is the opposite. That's like security through obscurity. And, and these blockchain-based systems and these proof-of-stake proof of systems rely on large crowds of people to, to, to create this kind of collective security
0: right and and i I certainly understand how that applies to the cryptocurrency world and other uses of 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 general ledger technology, yeah. but how how does that intersect with Web three and how does that intersect with IOT and edge computing and so on?
2: No, Web three, which is somewhat of a little bit of a rebrand of, of crypto to you know make it uh, more mainstream, they're taking the the wallet or they're kind of like rebuilding everything around this wallet structure where it's like, I'm going to use this wallet as my place where I store all of my assets. I'm going to use it to log in. I'm going to use it to vote. I'm going to use it to sign things, like you sign documents. So the wallet is kind of like becoming the new center of user identity, and it's owned by the user, and nobody can mess with it. So by taking the wallet out of the hands of everybody, all the big companies and everything— they're just kind of rebasing everything around the individual and their own data and their own money and everything is going to be owned by owned and operated by them. So that's that's sort of the the big switch in web3 and that's going to have a that that switch is going to have massive ramifications for IoT and edge computing and I can already see it happening. How's that? Well, every device is likely to operate its own wallet and I'm already seeing this this type of switch take place. So I'll take an example of just people are familiar with mining. Like I buy a helium node and I'm going to set that up and I'm going to put it in my window. Let's explain what helium is. That's yeah, super heli- interesting. Helium is a, it's a, it's a global network of, of people that are buying these gateways and they set the gateway up with an antenna in their window. I have like seven of them. And when they plug it in, it connects and it, it begins providing IoT connectivity to other devices around it. And it begins mining the, this cryptocurrency called helium or h n hint is what it 's called, so you 're actually earning money w- with this device that has its own wallet in a way, so like you 're providing that connectivity kind of in exchange for for earning these tokens so
0: so the idea is if we can get lots and lots and lots of people investing in these helium devices like you are because they 're going to make a little coin on the back end yeah. that helium, the company could potentially create a global network that People could pay helium to yeah. connect their IOT devices to through the shared infrastructure that you've helped pay for mm-hmm.
2: so they're up to five hundred thousand devices, and I think the tokens valued into the almost tens of billions it's still sub ten billion i think so they're they're expanding their model into 5g and probably other there'll be other models in the future as well
0: yeah that's that's super interesting and and how how do you see that translating to workloads. You know, I I recently watched your video where you're wandering around the look like Doug Furs in somewhere in in Seattle or near Seattle probably. And you were talking about the ability to use a token or a cryptocurrency to to pay for a workload on some device you don't own and may not even know where it is.
2: We have to actually rebase the entire conversation about what the problem is that we're trying to solve. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so there's a few problems that we're trying to solve here. And like the first is the fact that we're constrained in the amount of hardware, resources, connectivity, energy, security, storage that we have available. And we want to increase the efficiency of those systems because it feels like or it seems like the demand for the hardware is far outpacing the supply of the hardware. And that's... Uh, I mean, kind the, of on a
0: global basis. Yeah,
2: and and like people are having to stop producing cars because they can't get the semiconductors. So, and 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 then meanwhile, I think there's fundamental physical barriers. Which I'm not a physicist, but there's there's limitations to how much more effective and powerful you can make that hardware. So in the future, there's going to be a major shift, which is going from how do we make more powerful hardware all the time to how do we make maximum use of the hardware that we're able to produce to meet the meet the overwhelming demand. So we talked earlier about Kubernetes and, and like you mentioned the orchestration and the scheduling. And you also mentioned that we need to move towards, uh, move away from individual humans making these decisions about this machine should run this workload on next Tuesday for this long. You know, like that's not going to work. And the other thing that I feel like is not going to work is is some of the the scheduling that has been used historically, which is some arbitrary scheduling of like, Linux kernel decides we need to dedicate the CPU to this workload because it's been. An it's hour. even worse than that. Sometimes there's an yeah. IT
0: guy who's yeah. who has you know, got masking tape yeah. on the rack and he says, "Okay, that workload is going to run on that VM in this machine."
2: Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're going to move to a world of what I what I'm calling market-based scheduling, which is the people are going to bid on the available compute resources, storage, energy and they're it's going to be backed by the money that they have and they're going to say hey i want to use that gpu because i need to render this job and i've got enough money to afford it and i'm going to outbid everybody else and i'm going to run it for 2 hours and then that that transaction is going to go out to the internet somewhere and somebody in their region is going to say well i'll sell you that i'll sell you that capacity maybe i'm equinix or digital realty or american tower and i'm i'm participating in this network of market-based allocations and I'm going to sell you that. So I think that's where things are going to head. And, and, and helium is like the first hint of, of where that's going. Like that, I think that's going to come pretty soon.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. And I think to me, there's a a really obvious reason this has to work this way and that is because it's going to have to happen at machine speed and so you're going to have to have machine yeah. speed negotiations which means you're going to have to attach the price you're willing to pay to the workload and rely on some system. I mean this happens today in a limited basis with AWS spot instances for example. Yeah. That is an attempt for Amazon to sell unutilized inventory yeah. on a on a market basis and I can I can see that being exactly how it works. You think about like you were saying, the the developer, right? The developer doesn't care where it runs as long as it provides the security at the cost, at the carbon footprint, at the latency, at the whatever the quality of service you put in the manifest. And an intelligent enough orchestrator should be able to assemble all the fungible assets and schedule the container or the pod on the appropriate asset or tell you you need to bid more money or it can't be done.
2: Yes. That's exactly what I think is going to happen. I don't, and I can't find anything wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I see it happening already. And uh, a few weeks ago, these guys, Otoy, they've got something called the render token. Now what they're doing is, so like they raised, I believe they raised a bunch of money. I could be, I don't want to comment on <laughs> Yeah, that story, but And likewise, like in the same week, I saw this guy and he was taking pictures of, he had like all these Ethereum mining GPU racks. He had this entire warehouse and he's like, I have to shut all these down because mining Ethereum isn't profitable anymore. And I'm like, well, uh, maybe we're not, you know, as proof of work algorithms are exited, Ethereum's the second largest blockchain. They're going to move to proof of stake. You're going to end up with all these miners and GPUs just lying around. And what's a better workload than the metaverse to come in and say, here's some render tokens. I'm going to borrow those, G- those GPUs you aren't using anymore. And, and I think there's going to be the proof of work market as it declines has kickstarted this metaverse rental, <laughs> rental GPU market that I, that I see coming in the future. And the, this is my opinion. This is not yes. my employer's opinion. This is <laughs> my own.
0: <laughs> For those who don't know, can you explain the difference between proof of work and proof of state? Yeah, so
2: I I mean, proof of work is you basically just solve a complicated equation with a lot of horsepower. Complicated problem. And then so you can prove that. And and then that's used to secure Bitcoin. And there's been a whole lot of discussions and press there. And, And proof of stake moves towards this model where it's like it relies on a lot of people running what are called validator nodes. So it's like I can run a very cheap device. Could be my laptop, could be a Raspberry Pi. And through the magic of cryptographic mathematics, I, c- I can validate or, or verify the, the the central blockchain and its its security without having all this overhead and, and having big computers. So th- they're expecting there to be this world of you know all. The, so it's a, it's, I don't get too far, in it, but it's a very lightweight, much 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 more lighter weight way to secure the the blockchain than so.
0: If we're able to use our computers are unutilized assets more efficiently. And depending on-
2: And on that uh, point, before you go further- Please. So the, the, I I just double checked my math, but I saw the the most recent data is that 30% of data center hardware is underutilized or it's idle most of the time. And then 90%, in some cases, 90% of energy in the data center is wasted in some, some circumstances. So that's what we're dealing with like you're dealing with a lot of idle hardware and a lot of wasted energy.
0: Yeah, that's true and and we know that you can drive utilization up really high with intelligent algorithms and design uh, financial analysis companies like 2Sigma, they regularly run at 96-97% utilization. Okay. And so you're right. I mean I, I I'm looking around my office and I easily have two dozen yeah. devices that are doing nothing Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> except maybe updating an led yeah so, do we have enough connectivity to support that
2: uh, helium is expecting that they're going to be be operating more 5g nodes than anybody else in the united states in the near future they've just begun releasing 5g enabled hotspots I, I i've ordered one i'm on the list i'm, I'm going to get two of those things so it's it's happening i mean this, this is not a fantastical scenario like it's it's coming
0: and so the, I mean, the environmental, potential environmental impact must be massive.
2: So here's where things start to get really interesting. So over the last six months or so, I've been I've been watching Web three is relatively it it, it really peaked in the last three months in terms of like buzz and everything. But what had happened under the under the hood is a number of people are looking in the industry are looking to figure out how to improve the environmental story of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Last year, like Elon Musk and all these guys in the, in the media as well, they pointed out a lot of shortcomings with proof of work. So that, that led to kind of uh, a lot of the industry, you know, gaining, I think, being tarnished in, in terms of its reputation. But at the same time, that. We're transitioning into proof of stake now across the board for a lot of the, the major blockchains. So what these guys had done is there's a Wall Street Journal article about a week or two ago. Clima and Tucan Pro- protocol, they've they've set up a tokenized carbon market where there, there's these kind of certified uh, carbon credits, which had had this like trading volume. I think it was like a hundred million dollars of trading volume of these credits per year. And when, when Klima and, and Toucan came along, I, I think the, they introduced, they, they've, they've built this thing called like a carbon black hole, where their goal is to drive up the price of these carbon credits by tokenizing them and allowing you to, to exchange them for their, their cryptocurrencies. And I think the volume of exchange has gone up to like 100 million a week in some in some certain, So so it, it's just had a massive real impact and it's gotten, gotten coverage by the Wall Street Journal. And uh, Toucan, in particular, I've been having some conversations with them. They're introducing building blocks, is what they call it, like Lego bricks for representing carbon as, as like a fundamental unit of transaction. And when, when you start thinking in that way, where you're like, okay, well, I can buy these carbon offsets and I can integrate them into my computing system and into my data center and into I, my IoT system. And in theory, I could, th- there isn't much reason why I couldn't have my device if it's receiving payments for for compute jobs, pay some of those payments to purchase carbon offsets to to account for its own impact. So this world is coming, and I think this is going to have a this this scenario that I'm outlining is going to have a major impact on the world of edge computing and, and data centers. And I I think we've yet to see how far it can go, but I I think it's coming.
0: And what do you see the end result being?
2: I think the machines are. So I've introduced this term. I, it's not a new term, but it's it's not really in favor. I, I call it a machine economy. The machine buys for it buys itself. It justifies itself. It hmm. pays for its own insurance. It pays to replace itself. It pays for its own carbon offsets. And then there's there's money flowing. It operates its own economy between itself and the machines around it, and it, it exchanges value. So this machine economy that I'm outlining. I think there's an no open question about like what the currency is. And maybe maybe it's literally energy points, you know, like maybe it's all tokens that represent yeah, units, of units of energy, energy used and units of energy saved. Or maybe it's maybe it's literally carbon credits. Maybe yeah. everything is rebased around carbon, units of carbon credit as its fundamental. And this entire machine economy that I'm I'm talking about that, that pays for its own offset. That could, that could be, well, if your proof of work
0: you... is sequestering carbon, that's yeah. not such a bad proof yeah. of work.
2: <laughs> and then, you know, it'll, uh, hopefully everything will go to, to proof of stake, you know, and then, and then once that happens, like the proof, of, the footprint of proof of stake is a tiny fraction of proof of work. It, it's quite efficient. So I think that future, I'm hoping that future is, is what happens.
0: I've never heard that term machine economy. And, and I've, I've never thought of, of the idea that a machine, I mean, you, you, you have some of this to some extent, like in really indirect ways, you have subsidized devices, right? Yes. I mean, but nothing that's quite as integral and yeah. yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. I might have to have you back on in a year. It, we can see, we can see it, where this has gone.
2: It, it goes much further, you know, Please. like you've already got it in your house. If you've got a power wall from Tesla, that's, and then you've got a solar roof and then you've got a, a car. My brother, for example, he's got powerwall solar roof, and he's earning money every every month because he's selling the power back into the power grid. And then, if you add a Tesla, you charge the Tesla from the battery stored in your powerwall. So those are all using energy as an account right now. Right. It's dollars, but I don't see I don't see a good reason why all of those systems and systems like them wouldn't move to this carbon accounting system. And I think we're gonna hear more and more about, I don't know what we'll call it, but I wanna call it carbon accountability. So we've all seen the charts about how many devices and how many microcontrollers and how many processors have been put into the world. It's just this exponential thing. It's like, you know, let's let's put let's put processors and everything. And that was the dream of IoT. It's like we're gonna put sensors and processors and everything. And that's well underway. You know, I think I think just based on the number of sales of microcontrollers and you know the profusion of that, that's happened. But I think now that you've got sensors and everything, you know, they might as well also be used for car- carbon accountability of those systems. So, you know, why wouldn't my entire house have a very strong and clear view of how much of, of its carbon footprint? Why wouldn't my car? Why wouldn't my computer? And then why wouldn't all those things be unified by some common economy?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I recently interviewed the the CEO, Ali Fan, of IT Renew, mm-hmm. and we were talking about there's other costs that aren't accounted for like the disposal cost of a device when it's no longer useful Exactly. and so you could see actually making sure all those things all the ecosystem services whether it's oxygen or platinum or carbon get true cost accounted for in the device and the operation of the device
2: so i've written some articles on this topic there's a book called Donut Economics. And and the, the core theory of this book is modern economics is very primitive in that it's like, well, supply goes up and then demand goes down and, you know, like the price costs this. And donut economics attempts to add in the secondary element, which is you also have to account for the, the damage or impact of that economic activity. So if gas prices fall and sales go up, also you know sea turtles life spans go down you know like so you have to you have to embrace the full picture of all these elements coming together so i've i've put forward some articles and discussions around something that i call a donut index or a donut fund and i'll talk a little bit about exactly what this is so please i might need to first visit the topic of decentralized finance so if you if you've been ignoring blockchain and cryptocurrency and just ignoring it and hope it goes away. I've got bad news for you. It's not going away. It's coming and it's getting bigger every day. And like, you can't run. So like that, like, I'll just get that out of the way. So decentralized finance is kind of like, they've figured out how to do all these incredible new ways of, you know, earning interest and compounding interest and creating index funds and creating synthetic assets. Like there's a, there's something called mirror protocol. And what this does is, I can make a mirror asset out of Tesla and the way it works is like you've got something called an observer that just watches the Tesla stock and then it updates the underlying token and then there's some, you know, there's some math around like proving that that's an accurate update. So you can buy Tesla without ever, you can buy Tesla stock in the cryptocurrency space without ever owning Tesla stock and like I, that's not financial. But is somebody buying the stock? Yeah, like this people are buying this stuff. It's like No, yes. no but
0: is somebody if you buy a token does it actually does it actually buy into the I don't the think so. Tesla? I
2: think you're just buying a mirrored asset. You know, you
0: know what's really interesting yeah. about this? And I I am I I am a no-coiner, but I'm yeah. not a no no crypto. Yes. And and so I've only studied this a little bit, but yeah. one of the things that's really interesting about this is one of the the, the skeptics of cryptocurrency tend to say, "Well, it's a giant Ponzi scheme because at the end of the day, there's no intrinsic value in the underlying Bitcoin, for example. <laughs> Whereas gold is actually has demand. There's a there's yes. a flat demand for gold. I mean, you know, not flat, but this is there's a <laughs>
2: Pretty flat, predictable. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's predictable. Awfully flat. <laughs> but it is.
0: Well, you need you can't you can't build electronics without gold. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's a, it's a, it's an essential element. And so even if the the speculation market on gold goes down, the actual value of the gold will still retain. Yeah. And what's what's different about bitcoin versus a unit of energy in my tesla wall is that mm-hmm. the tesla wall is more like gold like there's actually yeah. a thing there that can be yeah, used why not
2: yeah the carbon yeah the carbon or the energy it's real you can prove it's there you can't yeah. so the- when
0: people say it's going to go away i think you have to ask that distinction yeah. well the the sort of synthetic things that don't maybe actually resolve back to an asset even though people are willing to suspend their belief and trade it yeah you know it's that's interesting
2: a- yeah it's just missing legal filament i mean somebody can come around and and introduce one and then they just have to put a, a legal bridge that says okay and you can trade this back for a tesla stock right. and, well know, and, and, and it has to be do.
0: backed by yeah. an entity that can can yeah. do that i mean that's why yeah. the us dollar backed by the us yeah. government it's like well okay it's not there's not a gold standard but yes the government so, you know
2: so getting back to the the fund. <laughs> yeah, <donut, yeah>, yeah. <laughs> funds so decentralized finance allows amazing yeah. stuff to happen so I think when you look at a device, like let's say my PlayStation or this computer, I imagine a world where every device operates its own donut fund in a way where it it has, like it it knows like this is how much it costs to end of life's life and recover me. It's I'm going to set aside, you know, every time somebody pays my Helium Gateway for, hey, thanks for letting me use the 5G. And the, the Helium Gateway is going to auto portion 1% because it, it'll be, expect to live for five years and then it will invest and even compound that 1%. And at the end of five years, the, the helium gateway could say, Hey, I'm going to send this to reclaim device protocol. It's a hundred dollars and a guy in a truck or a robot will come and take me and, and I'm going to pay for all the costs of reclaiming and, and, and stripping it down. So I, I picture a world where every device operates a donut fund like that. That's, that's funded through all the different mechanisms it has where it can it can recoup all these kind of supply chain costs that uh, are are incurred.
0: So when you when you look at all these fantastical ideas and you're starting to see yes. the germination of them and and some are going to work out and some aren't and yeah. some of my opinions are going to be right and some aren't and some of your opinions are going to be right. But the things that you're excited about, this future that you imagine, if you were given a magic wand and say you could you could like topple down anything, any one thing that's slowing this down or blocking this, like what, what would it be? What would the thing?
2: <laughs> oh man, such a big question. I might have to, I might have to like come back to that in a little bit. I might need to think about that one a little bit. Okay. Um, well,
0: just, how about, how about a, a few of the ones that just you you, you see now? I mean, regulation probably, right?
2: <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think people have like the opposite view of regulation than, than how it actually tends to work. It seems to me that regulation, I'm not a, not a lawyer, often follows the industry because, I mean, who, who writes the legislation and, and who can afford the lawyers to, to figure out what the legislation could be and who could afford to educate politicians and like train them on like, okay, actually you don't want to do that. Like we've, we've spent $10 million to go study this problem and here's a better way. So if, if the industry isn't incentivized to look at a problem, the funding to you know like I don't think doing legislation is a free activity. I mean you've got hundreds of Congress people and senators and staff and like you know like they, they don't just they don't just do drop what they're doing and do random stuff. They're gonna have to prioritize based on economics or impact or, or threats that are prioritized. So if if the money is there and and the workloads are there and, and the the market is there, then I think that that begins to finance. The, the ability to modify the regulation. And I think that regulation in the United States for cryptocurrency has evolved and will continue to evolve because it's like, you turn on, like, I'm, I'm not, I don't watch this too much, but like you look on Fox News and like, Tucker Carlson sits down with an hour with Michael Saylor for a dedicated interview. And when I saw that, I'm like, what is going on here? Like, Tucker Carlson has an hour of time on network television to talk to the Bitcoin guy. And it can only be driven by financial profit. It's like the the Bitcoin lobby has made enough money where they can, you know, buy ads and you know, like whatever, afford to have a, a spokesperson. And then like that that same money is what's going towards probably updating regulations. So, I, and, and also, meanwhile, I think a lot of folks are looking at the cryptocurrency space and saying, well, maybe we should tax this. We're going to find some new ways to tax this and earn above off that. So that's going to attract a lot of attention. So, I think the regulation will evolve it's not going to be like people have this black and white view they're like well that's just going to be illegal forever (laughs) did you pay taxes on that i'm like well you know like they're not accounting for you know things change and and, and things will evolve if because this is you know there's there's a lot of things for the government to love about cryptocurrencies we'll just put it that way there's some things they don't like but there's a lot of things that they i think they do like (laughs) yeah or will like
0: yeah, that makes sense. What yeah. about technologically? Like, what, 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 what do you, where do you see the areas of most fr- fruitful breakthroughs?
2: Yeah, I really do think that just shifting everything from manual allocation to, like, the, the biggest thing I, I think is just shifting all compute resources to an open economy, uh, where where you can list anything on the network and get paid to to put that up there. Because I think that's that's going to have a very Profound and massive impact on the compute industry, at the very least. I mean, any
0: market that I've looked at, increased liquidity means a better, yeah, everything almost.
2: So outside of computers and machines, like sure, I think that I think we're about to see a period of innovation in democracy, social engagement, and community itself, which is going to be fairly unprecedented. So this is going to get philosophical and abstract, and I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm, I'm encouraging
0: it. So please, yeah, this is really right. interesting, Rex.
2: All right, so there's three books that I recommend people read to understand what's about to happen. The first is called The Third Pillar. The second is called Capitalism Without Capital. And the third one is called Sovereign Citizen. So to summarize the first book, basically human society has been fundamentally structured around community and, and social and religion Uh, For the last hundred thousand years, and only in the last like four hundred years have the market and the state come around. We we didn't even have nation states until you know like prior to four hundred years ago. We didn't even have capitalism prior to that. So these two forces have pushed community and society to the sideline and taken over a lot of its functions. And the theory of this book, it's a nice book, is that the community is going to come back and reestablish its dominance. And that's going to require some technological changes first. But I believe that that shift is happening right now. And you can see a lot of evidence for it all over the place. So I want to go further than that. Capitalism without capital talks about the idea that we're moving to a world where the, the fundamental world of, of physical things is too expensive and time-consuming to invest in or, or it significantly lags the pace of innovation of things that are intangible, such as ecosystems, marketing relationships, and, you know, things like that. So to to, to understand a concrete example of this, it's like, let's say you are you you work 80 hours and you earn $1,000. You say, well, how do I maximize the value of this $1,000 to me? And option A is you buy a lawnmower and a snow shovel and like some gas for your car. And then you get some utility out of that. You're like, okay, that was kind of that's kind of useful that I, I did that. And then the alternative is you go and sit in front of your computer and you buy, like, you sit on EVE Online and you buy, like, a battle cruiser that seats 2,000 people and you can play and go on adventures and it has a holodeck and, you know, you can, in the holodeck with your $200 VR headset, you can literally have any experience you could ever imagine. Like, what's the better use of the $1,000? Like, what are most people going to spend the $1,000 on if they get the choice? So it's going to be this intangible metaverse thing versus, like, the physical real world. So that's a great book. And then Sovereign Citizen, I won't go into that book. <laughs> that gets political, but that's a, I, think that's a, I think that's going to be a habit. So read those three books, and, and that will prepare you for what I think is about to happen.
0: That's that's amazing, Rex. This has been such a panoptic and unexpected conversation. So I really appreciate you spending time uh, with me and my audience. If people want to read your work or watch your videos or reach out to you, how can they find you online?
2: Oh, just on Rex St. John and Twitter, and I've got a YouTube channel. I don't put that much stuff out there, but that's how
0: I found your interest in this, and it was.
2: If anybody finds that stuff interesting, you know, I could record more, but. (laughs) I've been kind of busy like with my third child and newborn and stuff. So let me know. Feel free to reach out.
0: we Will do. All right, everybody. We'll put some of those links uh, to the books and, and so on in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Rex. Really appreciate thank you me. having on.
2: I really appreciate it. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a
1: review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.